So as been, as been mentioned already, uh, we had uh, a Praying Life seminar yesterday, and uh, I, I can just say, wow, uh, thank you. Uh, for those who were able to be there, I know others were unable to just different schedule things or maybe out of town or, or whatnot. Thank you for being willing to attend a prayer seminar, right? Uh, two days to talk about prayer. Yeah, uh, I think we could come up with some other things to do on a weekend, right? Uh, but even with doubts that it would be worth your while, I know many of you came. Uh, and so I welcome you to Sunday school, adult Sunday school. Uh, if you came, if you didn't come, because uh, I, I wonder if God will take that and that that will be the beginning of a transformation of us as his people. Uh, and so we're going to catch that uh, as a follow-up this Sunday in the next few weeks to see what God kind of, uh, how he ministered to us by his word through prayer uh, but then what would that look like? Could God make us into a praying church? Uh, anyway, uh, be there. I'm excited to hear uh, what God did this weekend. For us, we're going to continue in our study of the minor prophets and learning to lament. Uh, and you will see that what we did over the last two days and what's going to happen in the book of Joel, uh, they, they seem uh, maybe not the same exact thing, but there is such an understanding of us and our interaction with God. As you've probably heard in these songs that we've already sang, the uh, Dean's Prayer, uh, just all of these different aspects, the call to worship that we read, uh, there's this sense in this passage and in this book of the the move of God against sin. And this is going to feel heavy, and it ought to. But we, as we hear the, the holiness of God, as we transgress against the holiness of God, that we have no right to be in the presence of God, uh, we need to feel that. And at the same time, we need to understand the grace of God and the mercy of God that washes over his people. And so we're going to attempt to kind of do both of those, to feel it deeply and to run to our Savior. But as we, we think about our sin, just to brush over it is not to honor what it really is before a holy and righteous God. So how would we learn to lament before the Lord? So let's stand, and we're going to look at uh, Joel chapter 1. We just want to hear the word of the Lord like the prophets would speak to his people. So Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Uh, we're going to read some verses in 1, then jump to 2, and then we're going to be uh, in different places throughout the day. So the word of the Lord came to, jo to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. 
Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field Whoops, all the feet, trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of men. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Jump over to chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There, like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fires, devours, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Jump down to verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before the army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Let's pray. God, those are sobering words. Sobering words where people who uh, define life and want to go their own way will ultimately meet you in your power 
and the wrath. Father, nobody be, will be able to stand. God, I pray that today we would weep and lament over our sin. in all the ways that we do life without you. Holy Spirit, come and speak. Amen. You may be seated. That wasn't supposed to happen until later. Uh, and that actually, uh, thanks Pete, that started during the second song. I appreciate that a lot. I don't know if you've seen it on Disney Plus, but there is a documentary right now called The Rescue. It has two bad words, so uh, take that as, a, as your caveat. But outside of that, it is amazing. It tells the story of the effort to rescue uh, a boys' soccer team in Thailand. You remember that from a few years ago? Twelve boys and their coach explored uh, a cave system in this mountain and unexpected rainfall trapped them when the water levels in the cave rose rapidly due, the, due to the intense rains. The cave system completely filled with water, uh, making an ordinary search process for, the, for these boys and their coach impossible. Uh, the, the Thai government uh, called in help from all sorts of governments and na uh, countries. Uh, our our um, Air Force came over from Japan uh, to help as well. Uh, and but the interesting thing is most military divers are not trained as cave divers. It's a totally different form of diving. Um, I have no idea why, but I'll take their word for it. Uh, and, but, and so they call in the best cave divers in the world who happen to be guys who cave dive for a hobby. An IT guy, uh, a, a doctor in Australia, and these guys showed up. And the boys, after being trapped for nine days inside of this cave buried in the mountain, they were discovered on this elevated shelf uh, two miles into the cave. It took the divers six hours to go that far on the initial dive. They were buried inside of a mountain, buried inside of a mountain, six hours back. They find them, but then how in the world do you get the boys out? Impossible. You know, I won't ruin how it played itself out, except that all 12 boys and their coach were brought out of the cave alive. How? An amazing rescue. Uh, actually, one of the pastors in our presbytery, his son, uh, ran the uh, special ops unit that was called in uh, from Okinawa, Japan. Uh, and the story that he tells is even more amazing than what was caught in that documentary. In watching that story unfold, it was obvious that those boys could not save themselves. They were completely trapped. They were utterly hopeless. They were dead. Except for the amazing rescue of someone else that came and got them. It's that picture of salvation, that picture of salvation that we all know, and we all believe, if you know the Lord, that you were completely dependent, completely helpless, 
could not save yourself. But what's wild is we, we get that on the front end. I, I was completely helpless. I needed God. I could not save myself. But I think at times we think that salvation saves us from dependency. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Salvation doesn't free us from dependency and just bring us to independence. No, it's not that at all. God's salvation restores us to a life of dependence. And so that initial move of God's salvation, where we are trapped, we are hopeless, we are dead without his help, that's just the beginning of the life of what faith looks like. Because it restores us to what Adam and Eve were in the garden. Before sin, they were dependent upon God for everything. And they loved it. Because that's what mankind is created for. So salvation is that sense where we are restored to what we are created for, for a life that hinges off the living God. Yet, if you're anything like me, what do we do, right? We're saved by, by this loving Savior. We know we were rescued with nothing uh, of our own doing, and yet we find ourselves drifting back into a life of independence. A life lived without God. And that's where the prophets come in. The prophets come in, Joel being one specifically, and they speak to the people of God who have been rescued and saved and done amazing work of the salvation of God, yet they have drifted to this place where they live independently of him. They endure a locust swarm and the destruction of their entire livelihood. Yet, did you catch this? They needed to be commanded to cry out to God. Think about that. You talk about living independently. Their lives were shattered, yet they were not moved to call out to the Lord. The prophets are speaking an absolutely and they speak a, a message to self-reliant people who have learned to do life without God. Now, Joel was speaking centuries before the coming of Christ. The sad reality, yes, Joel was speaking to those people, but it is written also for us. Because much like God's people throughout the centuries... People saved by grace, helpless people, without hope, except through the sovereign grace of God, drift towards independence, drift towards living life without our Savior. And so these words of the prophet, yes, they were spoken to Israel, but they are also spoken to us. You would think total destruction would get their attention, but it didn't. That sounds familiar at times, right? And so what, as we look at Joel, we're going to see this idea of chastisement and restoration. Now, I, I'm kind of pulling the, an older definition of chastisement. Like today's version is like very, very harsh and without any hope. But this is to correct something by suffering. Uh, a sense of discipline, to prune something, to, uh, to kind of take off uh, the things of falsity or pretense. You know, to, to basically refine something. To cause humility or maybe to restrain something. You know, that, that move 
of God that seems harsh, but we've got to understand that it is underneath and in the midst of God's covenant love. Because later in the book of Joel, we, didn't, we stopped at verse 11 uh, in chapter 2. Get this. Verse 13. Return to the Lord your God is the message of Joel. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And if you were around uh, over the last couple of weeks, you're like, wait, didn't Jonah just say that same thing? Yep. And they're all quoting Moses when God, in his grace, didn't wipe the nation of Israel off the planet when they fashioned a golden calf to worship some, someone and something else other than the living God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The ver- next verse in verse 14, who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering a drink offering for the lord your god it's it's the cry of god's people crying out to to him who is gracious and merciful not binding god obligating god and and we we cry out and we wonder how is he going to respond who knows he may leave a blessing and but don't miss the fact that Lord um, actually didn't, uh, didn't come across in uh, this PowerPoint slide. As you look at your scripture, if you have your Bible open in verse 14, uh, it is the word Lord in all caps. And what that means in the Old Testament, that is, uh, that is the English kind of translation of the word Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. So who knows? Maybe the Lord, Yahweh, will leave a blessing behind. It is God's covenant name. His his binding relationship of love with his people. It's his covenant faithfulness to them. And so in a sense, you could say, this is a loving father who would never leave his children to destroy themselves. What What would a loving father do, right? What would a loving father do if he sees his children walking away of destruction? Well, he would gently speak to them. And if that doesn't move things, he would correct them. He would warn them. He would warn them again. He would send his messengers, like prophets, to speak uh, to them and call them back. And then after all of those things, not moving his people Maybe a father would bring difficulty into his children's lives to why to restore them to their rightful place in relationship with him, loving, uh, living a life of dependency. What's interesting is that that's what God does here. He sends difficulty into his people's lives. Right? What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. The, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the hopping locust, the destroying. I, I'm not an expert on locusts. That just sounds bad, right? They just ate stuff. Uh, verse 7 uh, It laid waste uh, my vine, it being this, this group. Actually, verse 6 calls it a nation, which we're going to see in a second is why some of this is a little difficult to understand. Um, He laid waste uh, to my vine, splintered my fig tree, uh, stripped off the bark 
thrown it down, their branches are made white, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed and the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Now, what is Joel talking about? Is he talking about an actual locust swarm? But then he says in verse 6 that it's a nation that comes up against his people. You don't talk about swarms in terms of nations. And then in chapter 2, there's another group that comes, and they, they feel like an army, but then they're described as, uh, in terms of like locusts, and then they are like soldiers, but they uh, are they soldiers. And so uh, a lot of great commentators, uh, people that, uh, you would read and say, man, they, they really know what they're talking about, are completely split on what we're talking about here. Is this an actual locust swarm, or is this a metaphor of a locust swarm to talk about an enemy army? And then that's in chapter 1, and then the same question for chapter 2. My take, I think chapter 1 is an actual locust storm, chapter 2 is an enemy army, all pointing to the greater day of the Lord of God's judgment and his wrath that will come. So what does a locust swarm look like? So here's some modern locust swarms. Um, okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the videos online are pretty amazing uh, of watching a locust swarm. But, but God says uh, that, that there's, you know, kind of, you know, tell your children about this. You know, has such thing happened in the days of your father? You know, just seeing locusts come up and cover the earth. And you know, that, that verse of eating the bark and stripping trees. You know, those are all locusts, by the way. Covering that tree and just completely taking everything in its wake. Here's a couple pictures from a locust invasion in Israel in 1915. So that tree to that tree. That's a locust swarm. That's destruction. And now picture that all over the nation. Total and complete devastation. Now you're saying, all right, how is this a good, good news? Um, I don't really feel it yet. Uh, and so you got to understand how Old Testament prophets write. They don't write like us. We are very orderly. We are like uh, point one, point two, point three, and you build the first two, and it points to the third, and that's how we write. That's not how Old Testament prophets would speak. We looked at this before. We looked at a thing called a chiasm, okay? And it's maybe there. There it is. Oh, and that's really small. Okay, but I color-coded it so you could at least see the structure. Do you see how A and A prime are out-indented you're that way. Furthest this direction, and then B and B prime go that way, and then C is kind of the hinge point. And so there's suffering of a locust plague. Then there's suffering of the northern army. That's early chapter 2. And then there's the repentance of God's people. We're going to look at that in detail next week. But then coming off of that is the restoration. That northern army is destroyed. And then restoration again, where the land that is ravished by, ravaged by the locust is restored. So there is suffering, suffering, repentance, restoration, and restoration, and it matches, okay? Um, we're going to do that next week. But basically, you'll read these passages in chapter 1 and later in chapter 2, and it's a mirror image. What was destroyed is now restored. What was taken is now growing. Uh, the land that is parched is now filled with rain. Chastisement is not the end of the story, 
is chastisement and restoration. But what is chastisement? It is a divine wake-up call. Okay? So in, in chapter 1, verse 2, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now, verses 2 and 3 is not good news. Tell it to your children, and let their children tell it to their children, and their children tell it to another generation. It's not like, see what the Lord has done? No, this is see what the Lord has done. Tell it to your kids. Tell it to their kids. So that they would understand the rightful, the rightful judgment that our sin deserves. It's a picture. It's a warning. It's a help for God's people to understand it. And that's why verse 5 comes in, and it's awake, you drunkards. Weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Awake. Did you catch that in the, in the song we sang, God of Revival? Awaken your people. Awaken the city. God of revival, pour it out. Well, later in chapter 2, what does God do? He pours out his spirit on the people that awaken. It is this sense where, you know, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm. People of God, wake up. That's a sobering message. How are you living life on your own? How have you constructed life where, yeah, God saved me, uh, or maybe you, you've never placed your faith in the Lord, and this, is, this might be a, an initial uh, understanding for you, but how have you constructed life in such a way that you were living on your terms and you have learned to live without dependence on the living God? And all of this points to an even greater thing. You think a locust swarm is bad. It's kind of the point. You think an enemy army is bad. Meet the Lord in his holy and righteous anger. The question is, who can endure it? Who can endure it? The answer is no one. I think the point of the prophets is you don't want to stand before a holy and righteous God on your own righteousness. Because you won't be able to stand. And neither will I. This ought to be shocking. This, the, you know, the, the day of the Lord is coming, it's near. It, it's in a sense, wh what are you going through right now that is difficult? You know, uh, in a sense, don't waste your pain. Don't waste, like John Piper's book, don't waste your life. In, in that, he says, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your job loss. Don't waste that breakup in a relationship. Don't waste the natural disaster. Don't waste the season of time where your son or your daughter is rebellious. Students, don't waste that D or F that you just pulled. Don't waste it. Maybe God is saying, awaken and come to me. What a gift, a divine wake-up call before we meet the day of the Lord. What is the response? When you actually see, when God says wake up and we wake up, what do we do? How do we respond? You know what? We see we're a mess. We need to clean ourselves up. We need to get our act together. We need to make amends and set a new direction. Absolutely not. 
That's good moralistic living, but it's not the gospel. How do you respond? Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and do what? Cry out to the Lord. When God in his grace brings a divine wake-up call and you're like, I am living on my own terms. I I live as if I don't need God. He's a nice tack on. He's icing on the cake. He is not the cake. When we see that, what do we do? We cry out to the Lord. Later on, it's to you, O Lord, I call. We cry to him and let him clean things up. We let him get the first word so that it is not on us to do it. But then we get this, after this divine wake-up call, we see this call to lament. Okay? Chastisement brings this out. Did you catch that in chapter 1? Like how many words were just, you know, it's not like, you know, happy, happy, raise your hands kind of words. Verse 5, weep and wail. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now, what in the world does that mean? Uh, First off, this is a, a girl who is not yet married, waiting for her groom to come. In that day, the groom would come and actually get her from her father's house. Okay? And so she's awaiting that, but instead she wears the, the clothing, not of a wedding, but of mourning and grieving. She, she's lamenting over the bridegroom of her youth. So weep and wail. Lament like that young bride who's lost her t- groom-to-be. Verse 11, be ashamed. Wail. Verse 13, put on sackcloth again. This really uncomfortable clothing. And lament. Same verse, wail. Pass the night in sackcloth. Like, what in the world? It's this deep grieving and mourning. Words of lament. What did we hear yesterday in in the seminar? We heard that over 30% of the Psalms are laments. 30% of the book of Psalms, this is the hymn book of the Old Testament, are God's people grieving before the Lord. It's where God teaches us to live in the desert, to grieve over the state of things that are going on in our life, to express grief verbally. Uh, You know, um, David is lamenting all over the place in the Psalms. He's lamenting of being chased by Saul. He's He's lamenting of being chased by Absalom. He's lamenting that he's chased by Saul again and again and again. And it just laments over these things. But in Joel, locusts come, driving people back to the Lord, but they don't lament. They didn't return to the Lord. The essence of Joel is not just to lament over difficulty, but it really is. The essence of it is that we would lament over our own sin, our own lives of uh, living uh, in a way that we define as reality instead of what God says. What's wild is the people that Joel is speaking to got themselves into this mess. They've walked away from the Lord. They're living on their own terms. And God says, grieve over it. And we are called to do 
the same. So when I came back from sabbatical, I said you didn't get the same pastor back that went on sabbatical. Uh, and if, if you're new with us, I, I was on a three-month sabbatical from mid-July to mid-October just to be able to just kind of rest, renew, just to kind of meet the Lord afresh. Uh, you know, there, there's this sense where that's good in and of itself. But if that's all that happened, that feels, that feels like something that most anybody could really do, you know? Do, do different things and take a break from your normal burdens and responsibilities. But I think, I think what God did profoundly, you remember when God answered that prayer card about, God, how is this sabbatical going to become worthwhile? And he answered it in such a way that was shocking to me. I sat there uh, before the Lord, just overwhelmed by his goodness, but then humbled at the same time that I live so often on my own. I live that God isn't doing these types of things. I minister in my own strength. I, I try to be a dad or a husband in my own strength. And I sat there when God just so obviously answered a prayer. And what did it do? It humbled me before the Lord. God, I am sorry how much I live life by my own strength, by my own ability, by my own thinking, by my own resolution of things. God, forgive me when you love to be gracious and I'm over here trying to live my life on my own. It was this sense where God brought me to a place of repentance. God brought me to a place of repentance with Linda. Just not really fully being present. How many guys can relate to that? You know, not letting her into my life, not sharing my heart with her. You know, we sat there that day over coffee. Just, I'm sorry. And I need your forgiveness. What became clear this weekend during a praying life was how easily it is to slip back into those same places. Guys, the worst thing you could do is just say, oh yeah, I, I do that. And then set a course to go and, and do it differently. That's all about you. Repent and lament first and let God restore. He will. And you might actually end up down the same path, but it's going to be a whole different motive of how you get there. Because our lamenting and grieving over our sin, doing life the way that we want to do it rather than God's, you know, unforgiveness. These things show up in our lives and we just hold them and keep on trucking. Is that something, a stronghold into your life? What about apathy? You just don't care about life. You don't care about anything. You know what? Maybe... Maybe God's saying, you need, to, you need to humble yourself. What about self-medicating? <laughs> Through drinking, substances, some other way to medicate the difficulty of your life, lust, sexual fantasies. What about dishonesty? In financial dealings, dishonesty with your spouse, dishonesty to your parents, students, dishonesty with your friends. When we don't lament over our sin, it is a sure 
surefire sign. Like, take it to the bank. If you are not grieving over your sin or repenting of your sin, it is a surefire sign that you are doing life on your own. You might say, well, it's just a bad choice or two. Man, you're deceived. And man, I'm deceived too. Because I don't think the sin in my heart is as deep as it is. And God is saying, grieve, weep, lament, and then come to me so that I can restore. Chastisement that leads to restoration. Come to the man of sorrows. You might say, you know what, my sin, my lamenting, that's just no fun. But hear this, who is Jesus? He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. How beautiful is that? That it is not, uh, it's not just admit your sin and just t- see how rotten you are. It is to weep before a holy and righteous God. How amazingly so that we live on our own. And he loves to do what? Heal. By the wounds that he poured out on Jesus, he heals broken sinners like me and you. What good news. What good news when the next verse is we all, we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the man of sorrows, the iniquity of us, whole, of us all. And in him we are healed. Do you know the Lord? Are you soft before him? Or might you find yourself standing on your own righteousness before a holy and righteous God? Let's pray. Father, take your word. Take these words that Joel spoke to your people centuries ago that God feel like they hit home. God, I pray that we would not just sequester this as mean-spirited talk in the Old Testament, but we live in grace God, that is so foolish. God, free us from it. Free us from the fact that that we think we're better off than we really are. God, that we don't have these deep-seated things in us. God, help us to, to not run away from grieving over our sin, admitting our sin, repenting of our sin, because God, in that, you restore. You heal. But Father, it's not through us charting a new course. It's through us humbling ourselves before you. So God, use that. Restore us in it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.